welcome to episode number 346 of the Hunt Backcountry podcast. Our guest today is Cliff Gray. He is an experienced outfitter and guide, mostly operating in Colorado for elk, deer, and other species. Cliff has some great information out there on YouTube and some videos that I stumbled across and thought he would be a great guy to get on this podcast because I feel like he has a great way of simplifying a lot of information out there and making it very digestible yet helpful for guys. And so I wanted to spend some time talking with Cliff about elk hunting in particular and the experience that he has as a guide and outfitter, what he sees hunters do that help success or hinder success. We talk a bit about his time as a guide and outfitter, but really dive more into elk hunting tactics, mistakes made, etc. We spend quite a bit of time talking about why the 5 to 10% of the guys who are consistently successful have that success. So if you're not in that group, if you are a struggling public land do-it-yourself elk hunter, Cliff helps simplify some of the things that you should really focus on. And I know that that's going to help you out in this episode. As always, guys, we really appreciate you tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, it would help us tremendously if you could leave a rating or review in whatever podcast app that you're using, or just share the show with a friend directly. If you want to get in contact with us, you can send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com, or you can ask us a question for a show by looking for a link in the show description that says, leave us a message. Right now, though, let's get into this conversation with Cliff Gray. Well, Cliff, welcome to the Hunts Backcountry podcast. I'm excited to chat with you, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, dude. I don't. I didn't even tell you the backstory, Cliff, but I think I first ran into your stuff years and years and years ago when I was uh, going on my first elk hunt in the flat tops area and I was just doing like research on the flat tops and elk hunting. And I came across, I think what at the time was your guide and outfitting business. And then uh, kind of forgot about that. And then here recently I was doing some looking for like a resource to send to a friend who's going on his first bear hunt. And so I was, you know, answering questions and things like that. And, uh, I, your video on skinning a bear popped up on YouTube and I sent it to him. And then I started clicking around your YouTube and saw some of your, uh, saw some of your content and even recent stuff. I was like, man, you're, you're doing a lot. And a lot of like, it's a, I always feel like it's, there's a balance on providing good information yet not overwhelming people. And I think that you, you do that well. So kudos to you on that, man. Yeah. Thanks, man. I'll be honest with you. Like my, my content creation has been, uh, it's been volatile over the years, you know, mainly related to how busy I was with, you know, the guiding and outfitting business. So there was, there was like, you know, there's like even that business that, you know, I was in for basically the last 10 years of my life, you know, it would jump, right? Like I, you know, I'd have my, I always had kind of my status quo, like mule deer and elk stuff in Colorado. And then always like, you know, added things to it. And sometimes I was real busy. Sometimes I wasn't. And then when I wasn't busy, I tried to do content mainly, you know, really, um, for hunters that were, you know, you know, using that, those service businesses. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but then I'd go a year without making anything. And then during the pandemic, I didn't have anything to do. So I made a bunch <laughs> of videos. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's yeah. all over the place. But nowadays I, uh, I kind of made a fairly large transition in life. So I've been trying to get, you know, pretty consistent about it if I can. Yeah. Cool, man. So yeah, I guess to back up for uh, folks who haven't seen your videos, your content, I'd love to even go back to your uh, guide and outfitting days, but give us kind of like a, a super high level um, look at what you've been up to in the hunting world for, I think, you know, decades at this point, but just kind of that big picture introduction. Yeah. So, so uh, the majority of like my, my professional career in the hunting world was uh, my outfitting business in the flat tops. And so that was a horse-based business. Um, I actually lived up there adjacent to the flat tops. I, I don't know, Mark, how familiar you are. You, I mean, you might even have gone by our place, but I lived up there, uh, you know, when I had little bitty kiddos um, and I got that business was essentially non-existent. It had had a bunch of historical permitting for, you know, 50, 60 years or so, or something like that. Um, but it had kind of deteriorated. So I made a, made a, I guess a life project of getting that, that back, uh, going. And it was, you know, mostly horseback, uh, horse and mule packing stuff. Um, if guys are familiar with, you know, just kind of the wilderness outfitting model, it was like very much the, um, the pity of that. So mostly horseback hunts. And then as the years passed, I, I tried to expand it. I started doing a fair amount of goat and sheep guiding around the state um, in different ways. And then uh, before, before uh, COVID, I was spending, you know, my springs, you know, three or four weeks in the spring. I, I was taking guys up to British Columbia and doing the spring bear hunt deal. So I expanded that way for a couple of seasons. I did you know, odd dad hunts in the winter, which was fun. I, I had a couple of leases and a couple of ranches I worked with there. Um, so I've kind of done a, a bunch of different, different things, but the core of like my, my business was really the wilderness stuff. Um, and I grew up in a family that, that did that when I was a kid, my dad was an outfitter, same, same deal. Horse and mule, mule, uh, based, uh, based guy. Um, and then, you know, uh, I guess, there was a, uh, I never, uh, to be honest, when I was a young guy, I never really thought I'd come back to this, this world, you know, the ranching or outfitting world. And then um, just in kind of a ragtag set of circumstances, I ended up, uh, I ended up back in the Eagle Valley and, uh, and ended up uh, buying those permits and, and growing that business. Does that kind of give you an idea, Mark? Yeah, super helpful. I'm, how does that work in Colorado with, uh, you know, with permits to operate as a guide outfitter, because there's, you know, there's a limit on numbers and for certain areas, but you mentioned like, you know, that things kind of went dormant with that business. How does a call it an inactive guide or outfitter still retain that permit for that area until they essentially would then pass it off or sell it to someone else? Yeah. So, uh, so we, we, you know, this could be like a 12 hour conversation, Mark, we, 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 we'd like bore everyone to death unless they were, you know, intimately uh, interested, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you the short and sweet because I do think, you know, I do think it's helpful for guys to understand that, you know, like it, dude, my, my years of operating in, in the wilderness, like honestly, a lot of like a bunch of my guides and were public land guys that I ran into and were in the area all the time. And I always try to retain like a good, you know, good, um, um, 
you know, working relationship with guys that were in the area. And I think they're always confused, like how outfitters operate in the wilderness area. So I do, I do think it's helpful, but one of the challenges with it, Mark, is even though, so uh, all the outfitting on um, national forests and wilderness areas, and wilderness areas is just kind of a subset of the, the federal forest, really, when you think about it, um, they're all managed uh, by a federal agency, right? The, the U.S. Forest Service. But they're, they're re- there's regional offices, and those regional offices are actually separated by the forest. So nothing uh, it's it's really odd because it's a federal agency but each regional forest actually has a lot of discretion on how they manage permits um so um you know and, and a lot of that's reflective of you know what the big uh recreation opportunities are in that that forest so like if you take the forest that i primarily operated in um during my life a lot of the outfitting and how it was managed has to do with has to do with how the ski resorts were managed because we have two or three of the biggest ski resorts on earth here. You know what I mean? So they Mm kind of, they dominate how that permitting process goes. Now, specifically to the hunting outfitting, some forests will like, if, if a guy doesn't use his usage that he's allocated every year in the, in the, the definition of usage in, in, in this context is commercial use days. So if I take, you know, if I take a guy on a guided, uh, sheep hunt for five days, then it's five use days. And that's how your commercial use is allocated. And it used to be like a, like a use it or use it or lose it uh, type of deal. And then with some discretion, because obviously things happen with tags and, you know, wildfires and, and stuff like that. So they could use their discretion. You know, really what, what I've seen is like the permits I bought, they had been cut like a ton. Like they had been cut over the years as they weren't used. But it's like a slow process. They don't just wipe guys out and and uh, like reallocate them generally. But it just varies on on what forest you're in. Um, the thing is, is, you know, too, and there's there's probably people listening to this that are interested in the business, and you know, I have my own op- opinions about a lot of different aspects of it. But outfitting on on national forests and wilderness areas, the reality is, is now at least my opinion is there's a fairly captive feel to it within the forest, uh, within the, the United States foresters in the sense that they don't really want to expand that, right? I think, I think part of that is because there's a lot more usage of the forest in non-hunting ways. And then there's tons of guys uh, like you, Mark, I know you guys do a bunch of backpack hunting. There's guys that have resources that have their own pack animals and all of that. So there's just more usage in the areas where outfitters really used to kind of kind of be the only service provider. So it's it in most places it's fairly restrictive, restrictive now in terms of reallocating use, you know, new use, that sort of thing. Does that give you a, a feel for it? Yeah, yeah, it does, man. Yeah, it's it's a it's a weird world, man. I mean, the you know, there's uh, because it's different everywhere. Like I can't tell you, like even the other side of Colorado, exactly how other people operated. And I mm-hmm. dealt with that a lot. I dealt with that a lot on sheep and goat hunting. You know. I, I ended up working with a lot of other outfitters to do hunts um, and coordinated with them on it. And then there was times when I could get temporary permits, but that's all, it's all, it's, it's funky. It's just like any other um, it's like a, and I don't mean this in a super insulting way, but it's just a bureaucracy. It's like a mass, massive uh, DMV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Working with the government. <laughs> yeah, Exactly.
Yeah. So if we like, uh, like exclude the bear sheep goat stuff you talked about and kind of talk about the origins and your bread and butter of the, the horseback elk mule deer stuff you did. Did you have like a call it like an average hunter or did you have like a lot of variety and different guys with different levels of experience age? I'm just kind of like, you know, it's, we talk a lot about do it yourself hunts and um, we hear from guys who go on some guided or maybe drop camp stuff for elk as well. But I just, I'm really curious to always learn from, from guides and outfitters with a lot of experience on just kind of some of the basics. But I, I was just kind of curious, like if you had to say, like, did you even have a, a quote unquote average type of hunter? So, so as I expanded my business and in my business was fairly diversified, right? Like I had a bunch of different types of services I provided. Like we packed, we, you know, we packed and did kind of the drop camp deal in quite a bit of our business, but we also did a bunch of guided stuff. So I was a little different in that regard, just because the size of my permitting and stuff, I, I did everything. So I didn't really have like an average, um, you know, an average hunter. I had guys that wanted very little, um, they wanted very little from an outfitter other than just, you know, you know, basically location access, right. And just logistical help. And then I had guys that were, you know, your, your standard, like, uh, very high touch guided guys. So I didn't have a lot, uh, you know, really like a specific type of hunter. Um, and you can imagine there's different, you know, typically like your guided guys. Yeah. They, you know, they have a little more disposable income, you know, they might be, they might be a little older, all that stuff, maybe a little less in shape, but, but those don't really apply a hundred percent, but you know, generally there's a little bifurcation there. And then like your drop camp guys, it varies a ton. I mean, there's guys, there's, there's, um, you know, there's young guys that are in incredible shape and they just want a little help just to kind of as an introduction to elk hunting. And they, you know, they kind of lean on the logistics a little bit. And then there's older guys who've been doing drop camps for 20, 30 years. I mean, I, I had guys that had hunted some of those camps every year for, you know, for longer than I had been around, you know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. so you get that now, um, you know, there's for sure some trends, you know, in the, in the hunting business. Like I, I would say that, um, even, even during the period I, you know, I operated, there was a shift from kind of like, uh, your old school elk hunter to very much guys that, you know, that even like I'd pack them into a drop camp, but they would bring their backpack tents or they would bring their own stuff. And their plan was to go, you know, to go spike out and really even get deeper into the wilderness area. So that became more of a thing. And, and the reality is there's for sure, and I'm sure you guys see this in, in what you're exposed to in business. There's a trend amongst guys who uh, their dad didn't hunt, you know, their, 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 their dad or mom weren't hunters, their family weren't hunters, and they're getting into hunting when they're like 25, 30, 35, 40 years old. And so mm -hmm. that's a different, a different type of a type of guy too. that. And I don't know, like I can only tell you what I was exposed to, but that seems to be getting, getting larger. And I noticed that very much so um, with like the content stuff, you know, the videos and stuff. There's a lot of people um, who, who never, they didn't hunt until they were 30 years old, which I think is pretty cool. And in some ways, Mark, like uh, they have, uh, I, I bet a lot of your podcast listeners fall in this category. Um, they, they have like much more of like a beginner's mind about it, right? Like they don't, they're not there to, to like tell you everything they know and how great of an elk killer they are. They just want to learn stuff. 
And so that's, that's cool. Like, cause I, I mean, honestly, even though I've been in the business and been doing this crap sometimes forever to the extent that like the hunting part of it at times I've, I'm, I'm majorly burnt out on it. Uh, even with having said that, like I put myself in that category cause it's like every new species, every new place um, that you're hunting, there's so much stuff to learn. It's, it's pretty much endless, you know? Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, that's, that's part of what I continue to enjoy about it as much as you do it. And I'm not the most experienced guy on the mountain by any means, but having had more and more and more experiences each year, it's like, man, there's still something to learn. Like they're, you know, and that's what, that's what keeps it intriguing to me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course, man. Um, it's, uh, I, I think the depth of hunting is, uh, it's, it's way, there's way more to it than, than people know, man. Like I, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. Just, just the different, all the different species, all the different opportunities we have, you know, particularly the American Americans are kind of blessed that way. Right. Like all the different species we can hunt. Um, yeah, it's endless. You're not going to become an expert anytime soon. <laughs> I guess it depends on how you, de- how you define it, but, but you're, you're, you're not going to like embrace all the knowledge, uh, within a lifetime, honestly. Yeah. So t- I, let's dive a little bit deeper into drop camps because we get this question from listeners on, you know, maybe exactly the guy you described of like, Hey, I'm, I'm newer to hunting or maybe I, I grew up hunting, but like out East, but I'm newer to Western hunting and, you know, they're looking at doing their first elk hunt or maybe they've tried an elk hunt, but it was like this miserable failure or something like that. And this idea of, you know, is a drop camp worth it? And I've never done one, so I can't pe- speak from any personal experience, but in my head, like if a guy, especially a brand new guy, um, you know, one of the things that I'll put back at them as a question is like, Hey, do you, do you anticipate like going on multiple elk hunts for sure for years? Or are you like getting your feet wet and figuring out maybe I do or don't want to do this again? Like, I know what to do it once. I want to have the experience. I want to go into the mountains and chase elk, but you don't necessarily know, is this something I'm going to do every other year, or even every few years? Because to me, there's like, there's a cost either way. And so if you want to go completely DIY and like, maybe you don't have a bunch of backpacking gear and stuff like that you know, there's a cost to outfit yourself to go on this DIY hunt that if you're going to keep doing it is an investment that makes sense and it's going to pay off, but you can maybe take a, a cost and go to, if I just want to go once and maybe have this experience and, and then maybe decide if this is something I'm going to keep doing, then maybe something like a drop camp is a good middle of the road. You're not paying a fully guided hunt. Um, but you're not completely on your own. You can kind of get into an area that hopefully has some elk, et cetera. So that's the way I think about it. But again, my experience is none and my perspective is limited. So for guys who are in that situation, they're newer, they're debating, is a drop camp worth it? Like what are, in your opinion, some of the pros and the cons of going to drop camp versus being completely green and going on your own? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what I'll try to do, Mark, I, I think, I think you actually have a lot better understanding of it than, than you, than you, uh, it, you are admitting to, or just by coincidence, <laughs> you, cause you're kind of like in line with how I would, how I would make that decision. And, uh, and I'll be, and I'll be, uh, I'll be, you know, I'll try to be even keel on it. I'm not in the business anymore, so I, I can give you guys the the pros and cons of it. Yeah. It's um, not like you're going to say, yeah, definitely go with the drop camp. And by the way, yeah. call me it. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the, in, 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 I, in, 
I think this is kind of what I told guys all the time, even when I was in the business and I got these kind of phone calls is I think the way you're putting it is correct, right? Like if you're not, um, there's a component of this, like that, I, that I think is important too. And if, if you want to get into like Western elk hunting and you have, and you, um, haven't been exposed to the outdoors a ton, like, and you, like you haven't done like a lot of backpacking or you haven't done a lot of camping, you haven't spent a lot of time in the wilderness. Uh, you have to factor that in. I mean, if you think you're going to just, you know, go into the flat tops 10 miles uh, with your backpack on your first elk hunt, the, the elk hunting is not going to be the problem. It's going to be like the logistical component of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that could almost turn you off of hunting um, because you don't want like a lot of the guys that haven't been on hunts before and haven't spent a lot of time, you know, in a wilderness area, when we drop them off in a, in a drop camp and the drop camp would be like very well equipped, right? Wall tents, propane uh, stoves, a wood stove in the tent, that sort of thing. You, even with all that equipment there, like when you drop them off, their eyes are like looking at you like, holy shit, you're going to leave me here. You know what I mean? Cause they're not used to, you know, they don't, they're not used to being in that environment much. So I think for those type of guys, uh, it's a great, it's a great way to get exposed to the West because you have some logistics and you have some support, right. And you can, it's pretty, I mean, it's a lot more comfortable to camp in one of those areas versus just like backpacking in somewhere and setting up your backpack tent and that being your first experience. So I think that's a component of it too. Um, is just, you, you, you will get very remote, but you kind of have a little, a little bit of a, I don't want to call it a safety net, but more of like a comfort net which is a good way for people to get exposed to it. Um, you know, the, uh, the, I wouldn't, I'm not going to call it a downside, but something people really do need to understand about drop camps and just, you know, expectation wise is in, in this, I don't want to sound like a maniac when I say this Mark, but even if you're a backpack hunter or do it yourself guy, like, you know, 1800 bucks or 2000 bucks in the spectrum of hunting is like, that's like nothing. If you get into this over the next 15 years, like you're going to be like, that's really, it doesn't matter. I don't, it doesn't matter what end of the spectrum of like income or whatever you're in. If you're going to get into hunting, 2000 bucks is nothing. Right. So like 2000 bucks in a drop camp, don't expect to get camped in somewhere or packed in somewhere and you to be in like the world's honey hole, uh, you know, in an over the counter area, you, you, know, you open up the wall of the, the door of the wall tent and there's 10 bulls bugling around the camp. Like, don't, I mean, it could happen. And the camps are in specific areas for reasons. Like they've been there for, for decades. Um, but you got to understand that like, it doesn't mean you're really, you're paying for logistics, um, you know, and that, that, you know, from the outfitter and then getting packed in, you might have to go look for elk pretty damn hard, particularly in these over the counter areas. So I'm not going to say, I'm not saying that's a con, but I think it's like an expectation that guys have to understand, right? Uh, particularly if it's your first hunt, um, you know, that, that, that whole dynamic still applies, right? Like, like, you know, a, a small percentage of my, my drop camp guys, and it was mostly the repeat guys were massively more successful than the other guys. So, so that's still going to apply to you if you're, if you're new, to, new to hunting now, um, I think you hit on something like on perfect point though, Mark, um, a drop camp. If you're a guy who's real comfortable in the mountains, you know, you got kind of like your basic kind of woodsmanship up to par or whatever. And you're just like, 
you're adding on hunting as like another endeavor um, and you're a gear guy, you got some of the gear or whatever, or you just want to have your own stuff and, and you're like, I'm going to take this serious. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with like not considering it as an option, just go for it. You know, um, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you guys are in the backpack business, so you'd know better Mark, but I think, I think 60, 70% of the, the backpack hunters, you know, they end up, you know, in the depth of it for five, five years eight years a decade of backpack hunting most of them just winged it from the beginning and it, i mean they're basically by their nature if you stay in that on those type of hunts um uh you're a masochist so like generally <laughs> like you know you, you just winging it and getting into the depths of it and grinding it out that's how a lot of those guys operate so just you, i think you got to be honest with you like you know what you're what you're you know where you're coming from in terms of background and like you know, and how serious you're going to take the endeavor from the get go. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah. Super helpful, man. Yeah. Super helpful. Yeah, it's funny when you just said that at the end, it made me think of, so I'm originally from Missouri and grew up hunting a bit here, whitetail, turkey, et cetera, but obviously mountains and elk and all that was newer to me, but I did have backpacking experience and just a general somewhat of outdoors knowledge. And so when I jumped in, it was completely on my own didn't know anybody from home who did it. And it was just like, I'm going to go and give this a shot and figure it out. Cause I want to, and hard headed. Um, and I, the first year on my first, very first elk count was in Colorado and completely got my butt kicked, uh, by weather and some other things like that. And this was a long time ago, but at the very end of my trip, I ran into a couple of guys who, um, they were packing, back into the wilderness, but because the day prior they had packed out an elk. And so they were packing back in cause they had left some of the meat and then like a bunch of their gear and camp in there. And anyway, I got to talking with them and this guy was a Colorado resident and uh, I came to find out this was his first elk and he had been hunting archery season every year. And this was his seventh year and it was his first elk. And so to me, I was like a wake up call. And we all see the stats, right. Of like the percentage of guys who are consistently successful. Um, but I remember at that point in time, here I am at the end of a week long hunt, my first time getting my butt kicked, having like pretty much zero taste of even close to success, but still I like ran into the guy. I was like, I want to do that. Like, even if it takes seven years, like I'm going to make this happen. It almost made me you know, not mad in a way, but like, I'm going to defy the odds type thing, but you're right. Like that, that has to kind of be your mindset. Like you have to commit to it if you're going to really go at it on your own and then fully realize and be humble enough to go, I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm just going to have to figure this out along the way. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that's, that's what makes the in, in endeavor intriguing to the people who get obsessed with it, man. Cause I mean, this stuff, it's like, I guess it's hard to describe it. And a lot, tons of your viewers I'm, I have, are into doing these hunts. So they, they know the dynamic, you know, but a lot of people would be in that situation, Mark. And they would be like, this took this guy seven years to get this elk. And I just came out of like a horrible experience. Like I deserve an elk now. <laughs> and then they would just, then they would just like go, you know, go sell all their gear they bought and just go on to like some other, some other like hobby. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> I could <laughs> like be golfing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, I'm not, I'm not like digging on people. That's, 
that's fine. But I'm saying like, yeah, dude, there's a screening process um, involved in this. And it's a lot of it, like what you said is the opinion of it. Cause dude, that's super typical is for a guy to go, you know, five, six, seven years, um, not, you know, in a, you know, particularly over the counter units and stuff and not kill an elk. Dude, I would say that's like more common than a guy who just gets, you know, gets lucky and kills them the first year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know. Yeah. Which could sound terrible, but man, I always come back to like how satisfying though, is that when you finally connect, right? Because it wasn't easy and because you had to put in the time and the effort and learn a lot of lessons along the way. Um, obviously it, sure. We would all like to go out and kill an elk every year and find success. But I think at the end of the day, you have to find a lot of value out of the pursuit and not out of the end result. And if you can do that and find value in the pursuit and the personal challenge and what you learn, uh, only about elk, but also about yourself along the way, then it's like, it's still satisfying even when you don't fill that tag every year. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, in some ways, Mark, like, uh, I almost, this is going to sound weird, but I almost feel, feel sad for guys that go out and, you know, they go into an over-counter unit and they kill a bull with their bow on the second day. I almost feel bad for them because now they're going to, most likely now they're going to spend like five, six, seven years just trying to replicate that. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yep. they, they almost like, you know, they're, now they're going to, they got like a, a taste for it. And now they're like, now, now they're like hooked into it with the fact that they don't even realize like, like, oh, like most likely there's another four or five years of, of no success. <laughs> you know? yeah. And there's exceptions to this stuff. You know, I mean, there's just people, I guess, that are just born naturally good at things. I'm, I'm sure they exist and, you know, they get in good areas and, and that sort of stuff. Um, but, uh, but generally, it's a, very, it's a very time-consuming thing. And you know what's crazy about it, Mark, is uh, maybe, maybe you felt this way, man. There's a, a ton of pressure around guys and gals that do this. It's usually bow hunters, right? Uh, just, just because... Um, more of them are backpack hunters and, and more of them are hunting these type of uh, situations. There's like a social pressure around them, right? Cause each year when they go home to their wife and kids or their friends, uh, non hunters are like, dude, you didn't kill one again. Yep. You were gone for 10 days. <laughs> yep, dude. I definitely <laughs> felt that way. I mean, I went, the first trip was a train wreck and I had zero expectations and you know, whatever, there wasn't like a lot of pressure there. Uh, and then the year after, uh, me and the buddy that I was hunting with, were able to get one. And then we, you know, like, it was like, all right, cool. Like, we'll just go do that every time now. Like we had success and we'll go do success. And so the year following when we didn't get one, it was tough, but then I started to feel that pressure, as you said, of like coming home and, not so much from like my family, like my wife or whatever, but you know, friends and stuff like that, or, you know, aunts and uncles who would ask you like, Oh, you, you went to Colorado again. Right. You know, and they just have zero, especially because of, uh, coming back to the Midwest and them having zero idea what it's like to chase elk in the mountains with a bow. <laughs> um, it was just like, yeah, I didn't get one. Had a great trip. Didn't get one. <laughs> I got tired of telling that conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's always going to be a, a difficult one, right? When you, um, when they don't have the perspective, it, it dude, it, it's weird, Mark, because like a archery backpack hunt in Colorado over the counter unit in the wilderness or whatever. And it applies to a lot of other 
states too. I'm just not as familiar with them. Like people don't realize, like it's like one of the last a guy out there who's listening to this podcast or whatever. He's on the internet. He's never gone hunting before. He can literally just buy a tag and go do this adventure. If people don't understand, like how big of a real adventure it is. Like it, there's not, it's not like a lot of other things. It's not like, it's not like going on a whitewater rafting trip, right? Like mm-hmm. where, where there's a lot of controlled, like people look at that and they're like, oh, well, that's a similar adventure. No, no. That's like, there's a lot of like controlled variables around that trip. When yeah. you just like get your backpack and drive to Colorado and start marching into the wilderness, like it's a real adventure. <laughs> and I don't think people get that, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's so cool. So you, uh, we've talked about, you know, this long, uh, struggle to success that often happens. And as you said, some guys also have a natural ability and are consistent. Some guys fight out, get lucky on day two of their first hunt. But if guys want to become more consistent, maybe fill their first tag or start filling tags more consistently. One of the videos um, that was on your channel, I'd love to dive into these points, but you basically are highlighting like, Hey, that 5% of the guys who have success more consistently than not, here are some things that they do. um, And that contribute to that type of repeat success. Um, So I want to dive into those and just chat about them a bit on the podcast and I'll leave a a link to that specific video in the show description, as well as obviously all of your videos and YouTube channel. But one of those first points you brought up was that these guys know specific areas well. So can you elaborate on that point? What you mean by that? Yeah. So in th- this is an observation of, of guys that, that I interacted with uh, over the years in my area in clients doing drop camps. And then even amongst my guides, you know, um, I think people, people, particularly when they, they first get into elk hunting, um, in these areas where there's tag availability, they, they tend to hunt somewhere and they, and they immediately think like, you know, they have a tough hunt and there's like, there's no elk here. And then the next year they jump to another spot and there's no elk here. And then they jump to a third spot and there's no elk here. Um, and now they've gone through three, three years and they're kind of in the same, same, um, you know, a spot they were before they're, they're like trying to find this magic spot. And the reality is in these areas where there's tag availability, um, there's obviously, you know, there's, there's marginal differences in the quantity quality of elk in these different areas, but you have to be rational and look at it that there's game management going on in these areas. That's literally the identical plan, right? So, you know, the, the over-the-counter units in the San Juans, which is very far away from the flat tops, those guys are managing those elk almost exactly like they're managing the elk in the flat tops wilderness, right? So, and, and the ta- the tag av- availability reflects that. So you you I, you want to don't get caught up in just bouncing around all the time. Obviously, there you know there might be times to do that, but what you notice in these guys that that harvest a lot of a lot of elk consistently is they're micro focused on an area like, you know, they might be hunting the flat tops wilderness, but they're only hunting, you know, uh, one twelfth of it, you know, two drainages, maybe, maybe 30,000 acres or 20,000 acres, which that's small in the, in, you know, in this, in kind of this, this world, you know, um, I mean, you can backpack 
you can in, in country that's pretty mellow like the flat tops you can hike through 50 50,000 acres easy you know what i mean it you know just go right through the center of it. it's not like it's not that vast of an area so these guys will be focused on a couple drainages and over a couple of years um a lot of them i don't even think uh, realize it. I saw this in guys that would hunt my camps like year after year. They don't even realize all the knowledge that, that is like permeating their brain and becomes like natural to them. Right. Like mm -hmm. if you, if you hunt two or three drainages and you see elk in a specific area, generally like you've seen them there before and you kind of know, like, even if they showed up that day, which a lot of times in this over-the-counter stuff, these elk get the crap hunted out of them. So, you know, they, they might've just rolled into that area, uh, that day, but you've seen them there in years past. So, you know, like, okay, like they're in that area. Like I know where they're going to bed because I've seen them do it before. So you already have that knowledge. And then you also know, like, I mean, when I was guiding elk hunts and other species too, there's a lot of spots, Mark, where, I mean, like it, it was almost the, the hunts were so repetitive in the sense, like where, you know, where we pack bulls out. I mean, there's areas in the flat tops where like I've rolled in with mules and I guarantee you, if I like drug my hand around the dirt a bunch, uh, I'd find, you know, 10, 15 spinal columns off bulls within like 20 yards. You know what I mean? Like wow. the, the, like, the spots where animals get killed consistently, it's wild how consistent they are year to year. And these guys that are really like micro focused, I think, I think some of them are very conscientious of this, but some of them, it's just like, it becomes subconscious. Like they know the spots where they're going to kill elk. They know like, okay, elk, you know, the elk showed up in this area. If I sit in this area, it's just a matter of time before I kill one. You know, those like th those real basic things, um, they have a huge advantage over other, other guys. And the other thing is, is, you know, elk in particular, uh, you know, at least where I've always hunted them, it's real condition based, you know, and it, like conditions could be weather. Um, it could be how the feed is, you know, our, our elk move from the high Alpine, you know, down to lower elevations, but they'll do it at different times of the year, just based on the feed availability. So you know, there's that. And then, you know, where guys camp. That's a big one. That was like, I always felt that was a big one in our country. Cause I had like, I had a lot of drop camp locations on my permits, but I never, I never used them all because logistically I would have had to have like 200 horses and mules. So depending on what camps I was using, those elk would be in different areas, you know? Um, and the same thing with like backpack hunters, like if you're hunting a basin and some years there's, you know, a guy like there's a flat of timber in there and the elk bed in there every year. And there's just guys that don't know any better. They don't know the areas. Well. And every once in a while, a guy comes in there and he sets his backpack camp right in, right next to those trees. Like, you know, like, okay, those elk are probably going to bump basins, you know, like, you know, that stuff. If you've been in the area, if it's your first time, man, and there's nothing wrong with it, but you're more than likely going to be the guy who accidentally camped right next to him. And literally like, wow, man, there's a lot of fresh sign around here, but I haven't seen elk for seven days. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, so, and it's like, it's all a learning thing, but the guys that know the areas, like they don't do that. And they also know, like, they know when, when it happens, they kind of know like, okay, like I, 
you know, I'm not going to get a lot of marginal value out of hunting this basin anymore, but those elk went somewhere, you know, and they got, there's a couple other spots where I find them bedded. Like I'm going to go hit that. Um, I had guides and particularly got, you know, guys that when they're armed with horses, they can, they can travel. I mean, I had a couple of guides that were like, and what, and like one of them in particular, he, he grew up in the area and, uh, he was a straight up assassin because of this Mark. I mean, he, you, you could have these cold spells, man, where nobody was seeing. I mean, I could have 20 hunters up in the mountains and nobody was seeing elk. And this guy would grind one up and kill one with his hunter because he knew like a set of, of, uh, um, you know, a set of spots where these elk were going to be. If they weren't here, check this, let's check this. Doom, 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 doom. So there's a lot of value in that if you know an area. And honestly, a lot of guys, that are successful because of this they're hunting areas that are that are really tough hunting mark like they're you know they're they're i mean the you know the elk are you know the elk could be just shot up in that area whatever but they keep hunting that area because they know it well and they know subconsciously like man if i bump areas i like there better be a hell of a lot more elk in that new area (laughs) because i got to make up for the fact that i know this country well you know um so yeah man sorry for sorry for ranting but i think i think this is something that is uh is really key for guys because it 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 takes a lot of um you know it takes a lot of psychological strength to grind it in an area until you find until you find elk you know what i mean and like and really figure uh, a spot out i mean have you found this at all in in your in your time like elk mark yeah i mean in several ways um you know, I've hunted Colorado a handful of times archery season, mixed in some low draw stuff, but have done, um, you know, over the counter stuff as well. And we had that, that same dilemma of like, Hey, do we, do we stick with this spot and learn it? Or do we keep kind of like jumping and moving and, and looking for, you know, a quote unquote honey hole or something like that. Right. And, sure. um, there's been like, one area in particular that we've hunted, uh, I think three different years at this point. And, you know, we, we learned a lot in the first year for sure. And then, and had some success. And then in the second time we went there, it wasn't the following year. I think it was like two years later, but going back into the area for the second time, it just so happens that the conditions were much different, um, weather-wise and things like that. And being able to go, okay, well, this isn't going to play out like last time because these can, these conditions are vastly different, but even though it's a different year with different conditions, our previous knowledge is going to help us make more informed decisions on, Hey, because of these conditions, here's what I think the elk are going to do. Right. Um, and so, yeah, no, no two hunts are the same and, um, you can stick with an area for years and faced many different circumstances, conditions, et cetera. But again, that knowledge is still compounding. In fact, it's even growing because being consistent with an area with different conditions is going to just teach you even more of, of what's happening. And, you know, you can say that for weather conditions, hunting pressure for all kinds of reasons, but I fully agree. It's, it's helpful to, to kind of stick with things and it would echo even what you said of like, um, I've killed two different bulls within a couple hundred yards of each other on different years, things like that. So that, like you said, those consistent pockets, um, can tend to produce as well, which 
it's tough, man. Like I still get it. Like those areas and hunting over the counter, like you go and you have one hard hunt and you want to give up on an area completely. And then it's like, man, was that just this year in this window? Cause a lot of times these guys, especially out of state are dealing with, you know, maybe seven days of hunting and maybe they're just in the, the right place at the wrong time or what have you. But, um, I think that for all the reasons you described that the consistency is going to compound into success rather than jumping from unit to unit to year to year. Um, and it kind of leads really to the second point. You, you really already touched on this, but one thing you very specifically called out in the video is also that not all elk are the same. So as you move into different areas and early learning the quote unquote area, but just realizing that elk and behavior and things like that could be a little bit different. Um, their feeding patterns, their, experience with hunting pressure and how that, you know, um, makes calling more or less effective things like that. What, when you say not all elk are the same, um, aside from maybe something you've already mentioned, what else comes to mind for you? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, you touched on the, the big ones. I mean, one, so I always, I always laugh at this Mark, because sometimes I get like weird looks from people when I say this, but, um, like, it, all the guys that hunt public land, over-the-counter stuff, backpack hunters, guys that are hunting the remote stuff, but it, a lot of these areas tend to coincide with areas that are also the elk are managed for opportunities, so the elk are heavily hunted. All these guys will point out that, man, the elk that I hunt are way harder to kill than the elk that Cameron Haynes is hunting on XY private ranch. Everybody will point that out. Right. And I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not dogging on him. I, I, I'm sure he's a very exceptional hunter. I'm just saying like, everybody says that. Right. Like, and then the same guys, as you say, well, yeah, man, the, you know, the elk in Idaho and that, in that thick, you know, that, that thick country are a whole lot different than the flat tops. They'll look at you like, ah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's true. It's, like, yeah, no, <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. like they, it's just all like the way they respond to hunters, you know, and pressure is just like how they respond to the country, you know, the, the, the country they're in, the topography, the vegetation. It's the same thing. They just, they adjust to that stimuli. I think we forget that like, you know, you kill a bull who's four or five, six years old every day. He's living in that stuff, man. Like if you don't think that, the unique stimuli in that area is affecting his behavior. Um, you're kind of clueless, you know, like that for sure does like, like on, on, on calling. And, and it's like, I can, it's just, it's just in a very much my opinion, Mark, but like, if I, if you take a guy who's used to calling elk in, in like thick country, like thick, real rugged country. Um, and it, and it's heavily timbered, those elk, are not they're they're not in tune with seeing cows that are calling as much as the elk are in the flat tops. Like if you get a if you get a bull bugling in the flat tops from you know uh, whatever two you know a uh, uh, thousand yards away or something, and then you're gonna you're gonna try to get close to him and you're gonna call as you get closer to him. Good luck because that bull is scanning that open country. And he's going to pin your ass before you even know, be, before you're even like remotely close. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, because he's used to visually seeing cows, you know, like he, I mean, or in and that, maybe not the flat top, somewhere where the bulls right above timberline, like they 
are used to seeing cows. Like if you, if you, if you go in the one finger of timber and start walking along that finger of timber and every, every once in a while you call them, like, you don't think he's going to be suspicious of the fact that this <laughs> yeah. weird, this weird one cow is like walking in the like one stringer of timber <laughs> close to him. That girl's like, crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like he's used to seeing elk. Like when, when, if he hears cow calls, he, you know, he hears, you know, what resembles a bull with other cows like yeah he might have a little leeway but he's visually in tune with seeing other elk that i don't i personally think that that's different in other areas where it's thick man like just by nature a lot of the times they're they're you know they're more they're they they all are going to be able to pinpoint you with, with where you're calling from or where they're going to be able to pinpoint where a cow is like they know the country and they're just i think their sense of hearing is like we can't even imagine how much better it is because I, I know they, I mean, I, I've like, I've called and then moved and looked back where I was calling from and there'll be a bull standing like, like within feet of the tree I was next to. So they, you know, they're good at that. But what I'm saying is in like thicker country, they're used to not seeing cows until the cows are like right up on top of them or they're not used to, or they're used to, not engaging with a bull until the bull's within a hundred yards of him because the, the country's thick, you know, and he's got to come up out of a canyon or whatever. But if you're up in like the alpine of the flat tops where meadows are 500 acres um, and you're coming from a thousand yards and he, it, he like, it's a, it's a, it's an issue because that bull's not used to that. Does, does that, is that give you an idea of how I think about it? Yeah. It's um, so helpful, man. It's so, and I think, to like equate that to listeners and maybe listeners who don't have as much experience is run everything you just said, Cliff, through um, like that thought process, run that through what you guys, the listeners are hearing when you hear elk hunting advice, right? So whether that's on a podcast or a video or what you see on YouTube, it's like that may be helpful, but keep in mind that this is someone in a certain context and where you're hunting, you may need to use a different approach or strategy or whatever. And that's why, I mean, there's different ways, you know, to kill elk. Yes. And so some guys just in general prefer to rely on certain types of calling or maybe not calling much and glassing more or what have you. And like part of that can be preference and personal strategy, but part of that is they're effective for a reason with those strategies in a certain area in a certain context, because it works on those elk. And so we just, you always have to like filter your elk hunting advice, your elk hunting knowledge, your elk hunting approach as best as you can to the area that you'll be hunting, uh, which again, goes back to, um, consistency in the area is going to help you figure out what works in that area. Yeah. 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 And, and I'm, and for sure, I think that like, I think when you're looking at advice and stuff um, and I, and I try to put it in this, this context, like, um, yeah, you got to think about where, where they're applying that knowledge. Cause I mean, let's be honest, Mark, like guys, guys that like people ask for advice or they're, you know, or they're, you know, they're, you know, they're making DVDs or they got a, you know, a, a call business or whatever. Like these guys, they're not making stuff up. Like <laughs> what they do, what they do works. You know what I mean? But it, it may, it may apply more to the elk, uh, that they're, that they're hunting. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. and I think, I think, yeah, you nailed it, man. Like just, if you realize that, that all these populations are different, even more basic stuff, man, like there's areas, 
even in the flat tops, right? Like there's sections of the flat tops where the elk move in out, move in and out of private land a lot. And, and, and there's some areas where they're very dependent on the feed, you know, all year long. Like even in archery season, there'll be, there'll be bulls moving with cows off of alfalfa fields, you know, back and back and forth. Like not necessarily out of the official flat tops wilderness, but like the greater area that everybody calls the flat tops. Like mm-hmm. those elk are very dependent on private land, the way they feed, the way they pattern. And then like, you know, five miles as the crow flies, there'll be another group of elk, the private land, like they're never on private land. But you know what I mean? Like even in January, they're, they're not, they're not utilizing private land. So even those elk are going to be, you're going to hunt them differently, you know? Another point uh, from that video, and again, this is all uh, points to develop consistency and kind of get in that consistent, uh, smaller percentage of hunters that have success, is you talked about no personal distractions and tuned in logistics. Um, These are things like we've talked about on the podcast, but I still think it's kind of uh, the importance of it gets underestimated. Um, but what did you mean in the, in those areas of no personal distractions and tuned in logistics? Yeah, this is one that like nobody, nobody really thinks about all that much. And, and so I, I can tell you like in the hunting season for the last, you know, 10 years of being in the business, I was like the antithesis of this because I always <laughs> had hunts going on. Right. So like in terms of my you know, I always had like uh, commercial hunting going on. It was like how I made a living and fed my family. So in terms of if I went on a hunt, which I did over the years, I, my effectiveness was way down because of this, because I always needed access to my inReach. I needed to coordinate with employees, like that sort of stuff. It was always a part of my day to day. And so admittedly, like my effectiveness went way down because I have all this stuff that's, you know, sucking up just my life energy to deal with. I'm worried about, it actually affects, people won't admit to this, but if, if your wife expects you to call every day, um, you know, an hour after dark and, you know, you're, you know, you've got like, you know, you know, you're going to have to like sprint down this basin and get up the other side and you're going to have a shot, you know, right before dark on a bull. And then you're not going to get home till two in the morning if you kill it. Uh, if you feel like your wife's going to be stressed, scared, whatever, because you don't call her, I don't care what you say. It's going to affect how you deal with that situation. Um, and I'm not saying that's bad, but you have to realize that it, it is a factor. It, I know it is because I've seen tons of clients like this, that they, you know, they, it, it affects everything you do. And, you know, what, what you portray is like something, you know, something you're going to take on during the day these, the fact that you feel like there's the stress at home with employees, your business, your wife, kids, whatever, um, it does affect your decision process. It, I think, I think big time, like we way underestimate that. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, if it's, in, if it's important to you to communicate with your family, like it always was for me. Um, I think that that's good, but you need to like, you need to make sure, like, let's take that example. And I'm not, there's tons of examples, but like if, if my wife's used to hearing from me at night, like make it clear to her, like, look, if you don't hear from me, um, on the in reach or whatever, 
you know, it's probably good. Like, it's probably good. We probably harvested an elk. Don't worry about it, right? Like, I'll hit you in the morning or, or whatever. Um, you have to, those little things matter, you know, Mark, or it, it screws with your mind and it screws, screws with your decision-making process. Um, and the other thing, is, it's, it's part of, um, I think personally, it's why guys cut hunt short a lot of the time. It, it's like they're, they're so used to that stimuli and being connected to their business or family or whatever that they get four days into a seven day hunt or they get five days into a seven day hunt. And like the buildup of stress of not having like full blown communication, um, it like, it forces them to quit early. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think there's that part of that and guys, guys that are really consistent, you know, hunting, you know, elk that are, that are, um, that are hunted really hard. It's almost, I don't even know that I would call it a factor mark. I'd almost call it like a prerequisite. If the guys are consistent, this stuff does not play in. It doesn't mean they're like bad fathers or something like that, but like their family knows like, like, uh, Jim Bob is hunting and you're not going to like, you might hear from him every few days, but if you don't hear from him the whole time, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's for sure that's that's the, the the case. So that's my thoughts. I mean, the other part of that, I, I think in that video I talked about, which which is important, it's just more the logistical stuff. Like they know they're going to camp at this spot. They they use certain hotels if they, if they're doing road based hunts. You know, they they rent uh, you know a cabin from X Rancher every year all that stuff makes a big difference, man. Like they got the logistics figured out. That's not really part of the hunting, you know what I mean? That's all like a given, you know, so they don't waste time and energy on that. Um, does that kind of answer that question for you? It does, man. Yeah. The, the logistics, like you said, are uh, so important because whether it's literally taking time or it's taking like mental energy to figure stuff out of even it's like, Oh man, like we didn't, we didn't plan well enough on how to get from here or, you know, something we've talked about on the podcast a lot is like having, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C and like not being wishy-washy with that, but like knowing exactly that's what you're going to do. Like if you go into plan A, like this area and it doesn't work out, don't think, okay, plan B is like somewhere over here on this other side of the unit, but I'm not, I don't really recall how to get there without self-service or I don't know exactly where I'm going to camp or how I'm going to access it. Like, I'm just going to go over there and figure it out. And it's like, no, like have everything like as much as possible before your hunt figured out. And in terms of logistics and like locations and access and all that's just one example of logistics, but having all that stuff sorted and solidified beforehand just maximizes all the time, effort and energy you can put into the hunt itself for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think it helps. Uh, I'm sure you've experienced this too. I, I've seen it in groups that were clients and I've also like seen it amongst my own, my own group of hunting buddies is <laughs> if you don't have like that stuff figured out, the other thing is like, you're trying to figure it out on the fly and like you, Mark will have one plan, one idea, and then I'll have a plan. And then, uh, we decide to compromise on it and do, you know, not a or B plan, but C plan even though A or B, it, you know, was way better than plan C. That yeah. happens a lot with groups of guys. <laughs> yep. yeah. If you don't have a plan, man, you generally compromise to the worst solution. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And then real quick, like just one thing that's been helpful for me going back to like family communication is basically I was with my wife, give her, and I'm not telling her this. I'm just, like, I'm giving her the worst case scenario of like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm not going to have cell service or be able to reach you this whole trip or, you know, I'm going to be back at such and such date. And in my head, like I know that telling her when I'm going to be back is really the worst case scenario. Like in all honesty, that's given me a couple of days of buffer time or something like that. And then I can be like, Oh, I'm going to get back a day early or whatever. Um, But if I, I feel like if you set up like the best case scenario with your family, when you're away for a trip and then you can't do that. Now you're back into this stressful situation. So I always kind of like build in a, a buffer of like communication and time and things like that, just so they have like a certain expectation. And then I can basically usually exceed that expectation without much stress, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that makes sense. Mark, you, the other one that helps man is like, um, if you have an in reach or whatever you use for communication, like most, most of those things, have an SOS button and just tell your family like, Hey man, like I carry this thing with me. If it's a real problem, I'm going to hit that button. And in my business, Mark, I've hit that button (laughs) and it works. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, we've had, you know, uh, accidents and emergency situations where you hit that button and everybody's going to know that something's up. So if you, if you happen to be using one of those devices, I don't know if, if, if you do or whatever, but yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, man, like they're fairly inexpensive. I don't, I don't see why anybody wouldn't, um, that right there can take a lot of, a lot of the stress out of, out of people's, uh, concern. Cause I'm not, and I'm not trying to belittle it, Mark, like, and I hope that's not how this is coming across. Um, I get why people are worried about other people, but, um, uh, that helps a lot, right? Like I carry this thing all the time. If I get into serious trouble, I'll, I'll click the button, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, man, I, I think that, uh, I think that one is just, uh, uh, under underrated. And then particularly if you're just getting into it, I think that hits you sometimes, man. Like, um, even I'll be honest with you, man, like there's years where I didn't guide very much. And then the next year, like, um, like for the, t- towards the end of my, uh, guiding career, I, uh, I tended to just the logistics of the business. I was guiding more like sheep and goat hunts. And so that'd be more volatile. Like one year I'd have one in September and then the next year I'd have like six in a row or something crazy. And I would get sometimes where like I have little kids and if I was gone for like a long stretch, I'm like, man, I like miss my kids, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's nice to have those, um, those in reach devices and stuff to, to communicate with people. So, you know, you just got to keep it under control. Yeah. For me, it's, uh, you know, I try and plan my hunts in the fall because usually I have several and, you know, try to get some space between them and things like that. Um, and of course I'm not guiding. So I have that luxury of, like okay i'm gonna be gone for a week but then i'm home for two or three and then gone again but i even remember you know when i first started taking out of state trips like for longer durations you know 10 days or whatever i had young kids and sometimes that communication is almost like a a bad thing in a way because i remember one trip i had it was like probably day five and i got up on this real high point real high ridge and just happened to check and had cell service and, you know, I had sent like some quick in reach, or I think it may, this was years ago. I think it may have had a spot at the time or something like that, but you know, quick text, but no phone calls. And I got sp- service in this one spot on like day five and called and got to talk to my wife. And then I think my daughter was, you know, a couple years old or something at the time, three years old. And 
she was like a wreck on the phone. Like, dad, I miss you so much. You know, oh. <laughs> I was like, that was the worst thing I could have done in that moment. To be honest with you is like actually call yeah, and yeah. talk to my wife and my three-year-old daughter, because then it was like, I just want to go home. You know, I got like three days left, but all I want to do now is go home. So it's almost like, a, you got to balance things out with communication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Sure. I, I think really, I guess the, I guess the point is Mark is like, you, you got to put it in the context that it's a variable. So think about it and, and try to work it out with, with, with whoever, uh, you know, might be uh, the, the source of stress or, or, you know, internal stress that you just create uh, also um, related to family or work or whatever, just realize it's an, it's a thing, you know, it does, it does affect you. Um, so, yeah, but um, yeah, no, it's, it's one that though I noticed a, a lot of, you know, like I said, like, guys that guys that are pretty proficient they got it they got it figured out one of the ones you mentioned there we we've kind of touched on this a little bit in passing but you just talked about embracing the moment um to you why does that why does that matter toward because when i hear embrace the moment and um this is something i i tend to harp on and tell guys it's like even if you go and you don't have success like i said earlier it's like embrace the whole process and the challenge and and get out of the hunt um meaning and value that's beyond the kill but when you talk about embrace the moment what what does that tie to for you specifically with these guys who actually do have success and why that matters towards their success yeah so so i i use the term like kind of in two ways one one way uh the intuitive way that that you describe mark is like a lot of these guys that are very successful like they're enjoying the hunt for what it is right and particularly if you're around a lot of these guys that have hunted for years this way and in success in some ways they feel like a little more given uh, to them or whatever, as long as they put the, the effort in, they're not really worried about killing something. And a matter of fact, like they start to like, they're the kind of guy you like sit on a ridge and they're glassing, but really they're just telling you stories about like, we killed a bull there one time we killed one there. And like, they're embracing like, that this is like, like, this is the place they want their ashes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so like they embrace the moment that way. Um, and so they, I think in some ways um, they're able to keep at it, you know, more consistently and hunt to the end of all their hunts because they're not stressed out about it. And they just enjoy being in the field, regardless of harvesting things or not. The other way I use that, is that, that term is kind of like a different context is they realize that, um, and this is hard to, to fathom when you're like, if you've gone four days, five days without seeing an elk, all these guys that consistently kill elk, they realize that it just takes one moment for that whole hunt to turn around. And, and I mean, I saw this like so many times. I mean, this is like the norm when you're guiding. When you're guiding animals that are heavily hunted, you know, you, you grind for a couple days. I mean, if you grind for just two days and like, it's hard hunting, um, and you're not seeing a whole lot of animals and you kill an animal on the third day, like that's a really good hunt, but there's a lot of guys, you know, you get to the third day and you haven't seen an elk, like they're, they're looking for the exit, you know, like they're, they're tired and they feel like, man, like I've put in a, a lot of effort here. And it is, this is like, this is very hard. Like, I don't know if there is an elk left on planet earth, you know what I mean? (laughs) And then, and then like the next thing, you know, like 
you know, you, you glass a bull's beam up in the timber, like, and he's 200 yards from it. And it's like, Hey, dude, get your gun and shoot him. You know, now all of a sudden, uh, the hunt, all of a sudden, well, first of all, everybody forgets about like the first three days or five days or six days or whatever that sucked. They just think about how awesome of a hunt it was, but you have to realize that to me, part of embracing the moment is that like any moment, this whole dynamic could change. And so you have to, if you keep that in mind, it'll drive you through a lot of, a, a lot of like hunts that are pretty, pretty tough. And, um, these guys that are consistent in areas that are hard, that, you know, are heavily pressured. That's the norm, man. Like you're not going to get opportunities to kill something every day. You know, that's not, that's not how it works. So you have to be willing to enjoy everything while you're doing it. And then you have to, you have to realize that any moment can change the whole, the whole dynamic. And I always throw in there too, Mark, like, the other thing is like, you may not just like an elk might not walk out in the trail and just sacrifice himself to your, your hunt, but you might, you know, you might have some experience that is like unforgettable and you learn a ton from, or, you know, or you just, you're going to talk about forever. I mean, like my, like my spring times in British Columbia, I don't really talk about, um, you know, ex, ex black bear, that was killed or this seven foot bear that was killed almost always the stories I talk about from there like are like when a grizzly came into camp and you know stole a bear hide and a couple skulls or something like those are the the stuff I really talk about you know so those are the things that get me excited in in a lot of ways so um so at any moment something like that could happen you know so I, I think it's important that that we keep that we keep that in context and in in the end that's it it makes it makes people way better hunters if they view these hunts that way. That's a great place to to cap it, Cliff. And um, I could keep talking all day, but I don't want to soak up all your time. And in the in the show description again for listeners, I will link to uh, your YouTube channel. Um, one of the videos I saw on there that I know would be helpful to a lot of the guys listening as well was you have a video outlining the best Western hunts for new hunters. Um, and these are opportunities that are pretty easy to come by, gain experience on, et cetera. So that's one in particular I'll include, but, uh, all of your other videos there as well. In addition to that, Cliff, is there any other, like a website or anything like that, that you want to point folks to? You know, uh, so I have a, a new little website. It's called pursuitwithcliff.com, And I got a little newsletter there you can sign up for. Um, and then, uh, you know, really the other way that I mainly communicate with people is Instagram. And my Instagram is Cliff, C-L-I-F-F-G-R-Y. Um, but yeah, that's about it, man. I appreciate the conversation, Mark. I, ho- I, hope, so. I hope folks got, got some value out of it. Well, there you have it, guys. If you want to hear more from Cliff, I do highly recommend going over to his YouTube channel, which we have a link for in the show description, and also his website, which he just mentioned as well. Once again, if you have anything for us, feel free to send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com or look for the link in the show description to leave us a quick audio message with a question for a future Q&A episode on this podcast. As always, guys, if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.